From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Paige Fernandez, the ACLU's policing policy advocate, and I'm so excited to be taking the At Liberty reins for the next month. I do have a confession to make. I have had a true crime obsession most of my life. My job at the ACLU and my organizing work and personal beliefs may make this surprising. I spend my time working to help communities divest from their local police forces, and I talk openly about how abolition, to me, feels like the best solution to ending our carceral punishment system and police violence. These two interests feel at odds with each other, but I can't quite figure out what it is about true crime media that has me so hooked. It's made me wonder what its popularity has on the American psyche, particularly as it relates to our views on the criminal legal system and policing. That's why I'm so thrilled to have Kelly Bowling joining us today. After 12 years as a marketing and advertising executive in North and South Carolina, Bowling received her PhD at the University of South Carolina in mass communication. Her research focuses on the audience reception of media, specifically media depiction and reception by traditionally marginalized audiences based on race and gender. Kelly, welcome to At Liberty. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I wanted to start by just asking a simple question for our listeners who may not be as familiar with this topic. True crime seems to be a pulp culture phenomenon right now. So what is true crime, and how does it differ from shows like CSI, Forensic Files, and Law and & Order? That's a great question. So first of all, true crime is true. <laughs> By nature, it is not fiction. So the difference between really true crime and, say, a traditional journalist story on a crime that has happened is that true crime is told in a narrative format. The difference between true crime and, say, CSI is that CSI is often based on it. I think they say, you know, taken from the headlines, but it's not true crime. There's still an element of fiction there. The genre itself has been around for decades on network shows like 48 Hours, on CBS, and Dateline on NBC. Why do you think there has been such a spike in interest over the last decade, it seems? Um, so true crime has actually been around for centuries, right? Mm. There were true crime magazines that came out um, early in the 1900s, novels, books, documentaries, television shows, movies. The difference is, is we can now quantify it. <laughs> so we don't know really that there's been an uptick. What we know is that we can now quantify it. We can count how many people tuned in to the live YouTube coverage of the Rittenhouse case. We can count mm. how many people were posting TikTok videos on Gabby Petito. So we're able to now quantify it, which makes it feel like it's a pop culture phenomenon. Um, but we don't actually have any comparison data to see, you know, percentage-wise of the U.S. population, has the true crime audience increased or does it just feel like it's increased because it's in our faces? The other thing to think of is it's also now much more accessible. It is literally available 24-7. Podcasts, streaming platforms, movies, TV shows, it is so much more accessible than it has ever been. So again, that's what makes it look like it's so much more popular. I know. I feel like every time I open my podcast app on my phone, it's just 
crime junkies, crime junkies, crime junkies over and over (laughs) again. But let's kind of shift gears and get into some of the psychological reasons that people are so fascinated and drawn to the genre. Yeah, so it's not my opinion. It's actually based on research. (laughs) So what I will say before I even go into this is I'm also a true crime fan. Mm -hmm. So I've also questioned my attractiveness to the genre. I love it. And so that's probably why I'd started going researching down this path. But first of all, you said why people are attracted. So let's let's be very clear there. It's women. Mm -hmm. It's women. And it's mostly white women. So the true crime genre is very white and very heteronormative. So you look at it and you think, is this because they're portraying all white women as the victims? Or is this because they know their audience is white women and they're trying to cater to them? You don't really know. But true crime, just in general, my research has found that 73% of the audience is female. I think it's much higher than that. And so my research has focused on that attraction, But also prior research and other current research has found very similar things. So first of all, what it found is the reason that women are attracted to true crime is because they think they can learn how to protect themselves. So in other words, if I listen to this, then if I find myself in the same situation, I might be able to get out of it. I might be able to survive. As a listener, I would say the same thing. It's also the mystery side of things. People love mysteries. People love stories. Um, there's also an aspect to justice being served. So people listen to, and again, people, women, listen to true crime because they want to see justice served, right? We're so, we hear so many horrible stories of injustice in our society. So a lot of the women that I interviewed that listened to true crime were victims themselves. Most of them were domestic violence survivors. And what they told me is, I don't understand how my dad could do this to me and my mom. I don't understand how my boyfriend could do this. I don't understand how my husband could do this. They're trying to better understand something that they don't think they could ever do. So do you find that not all survivors, especially listeners of true crime, find justice and healing through our criminal legal system? Do you think that there are conversations they're having around what a new vision of justice might look like and feel like for them? I do. So a lot of the women that I spoke to, to be honest, had given up on the idea of getting justice out of the criminal justice system. Mm. One of the ladies specifically that I remember, uh, one of her quotes in my study, she said, I don't trust the cops and that's why I stopped wearing the badge. So she was actually a cop herself, which spoke a lot to me. But most of the women that I spoke to, they did not see justice served in their particular case. And so when they are listening to True Crime Podcast, what they told me was, they're not actually looking for justice from the criminal justice system anymore. What they're wanting is to educate the rest of the public on the lived reality of victims and how to interact with the criminal justice system. Mm. 
And so interestingly enough, it's not just the victims. I've also spoken to several true crime podcasters. What they would tell me is the reason we are producing a true crime podcast is because we want to educate people on the reality of the criminal justice system. It is not what you see on TV. And just to give you an idea, the podcasters I spoke to, one of them was a law professor. Some of them were hardcore journalists. And so the fact that all of them mentioned education, I didn't expect it. I don't know why, but that sort of came out of left field for me. But then, of course, you can't deny the true crime podcasts that have driven justice, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, Curtis Flowers you know, in Mississippi was tried for the same crime six times by an attorney general that kept stacking the jury box with, you know, blatant racist tax. Gets all the way to Supreme Court. When Madeline Barron goes to the Supreme Court for the hearing that day, there's a, there's a long line of hundreds of people waiting to get in to see the Supreme Court hear Curtis's case. And as Madeline walks down that line, people said, you know, this is a podcast line, right? But my research does not show that that is why victims are listening. They're really listening from a place of healing and growth. So these storytellers have a role to play, too. And I want to talk about what, how, and why we tell true crime stories. First, starting with the standards surrounding true crime stories. Do you think there's a need for a higher journalistic standard in true crime storytelling? 100%. (laughs) Yes. True crime storytellers come from a variety of backgrounds. Some definitely come at it from a capitalistic standpoint. They're doing this because they think this is the hot thing. I can get advertisers. I can get sponsors. Um, And they don't have any training in journalism. Others are true journalists. So I'll give you a great example. Um, Cold that was produced by KSL TV in Utah. Uh, Dave Cauley was the host there. And it focused on a case of a presumed domestic violence victim. She's never been found. Uh, Her husband and the two sons. This was a a story that was covered extensively in Utah for decades. Uh, Susan Powell has been missing, you know, since I think 1990. Um, But in any case, it's been covered extensively. Dave wanted to go into the project doing it differently. Like this is different than media coverage. We're going to tell this story. But he made sure that he had buy-in from the detectives that worked on the case, from Susan's family, and from her friends. And Susan's family said on the podcast, we're tired of talking about this. We are done with it. We're done with the media coverage, all of that. But every time we do this, somebody says that they got out of their situation because they heard about Susan's. And so if we can save one more life, then we'll do it again. And I thought that that's amazing, right? That Dave would say, I'm only going to do this if I get the family's buy-in. Um, that's not always the, always the case. Yes, families are often exploited. I mean, look at cereal, right? Heyman Lee's family also said, we will not participate. We will not speak to you. Uh, crime Junkie, number one true crime podcast for a long time, came under fire for um, plagiarism. <laughs> Right. Just a couple of years ago, actually, Flowers was deemed for plagiarism. Again, she's thinking, I'm not a journalist. I'm producing a podcast. 
And she was using books and newspaper articles and documentaries to build her story. And she wasn't properly citing those sources. She was dinged for that. She came under a lot of fire. She's still the number one true crime podcast today. So did the audience care? (laughs) I don't know. But yes, I would say there needs to be a standard and it should be high. I wanted to kind of talk about racism in true crime in both like whose stories we tell and how we tell them. So obviously the recent case of Gabby Petito has reinvigorated this conversation about whose cases we talk about. And so this young white woman disappeared and her supposed murder made headlines. And many folks were speaking out again about the lack of stories about women of color, especially Black and Indigenous women, especially Indigenous women, where Gabby Petito's body was found. Mm -hmm. Why do you think true crime so consistently leaves out these women of color um, unless it's, you know, these folks are being pointed out as the perpetrators? Yeah, it's so interesting. You're right. I believe the number was 710 Indigenous women had gone missing there and no coverage of those women. So it's hard to compare that to Gabby Petito, right? Because maybe those Indigenous women were not YouTube or TikTok influencers. Maybe they weren't, you know, vlogging as they went across the country with their boyfriend. But still, 710. So the CBC up in Canada did a phenomenal job on that podcast Finding Cleo where they talked about all of the indigenous children um, in Canada that were taken from their families in the 60s because their families were part of the, um, the welfare system in Canada. Why wasn't that podcast more popular? Why weren't we talking about that podcast in the evening news? Why wasn't there a huge governmental investigation into that? Why weren't those numbers exposed by all the journalists across the the nation, right? They weren't. You didn't hear a lot about finding Cleo. The only underlying factor was it it was about an Indigenous family. We had just spoken about you know, victims' rights in this, victims' families' rights. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about what you think about the person who was accused as well or the person who was charged and convicted. Their name will always be out there. If they are exonerated, people will always be suspicious. What do you think about that? And why do you think there is kind of this, like, lack of empathy for the other people involved whose lives will be kind of upended? I think lack of empathy is... Spot on. Uh, I mean, if you go back to serial, right? How many of us are still questioning Jay's involvement in in Hayes' murder? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yep. I'm willing to bet he can't go to the grocery store without getting harassed. I don't trust Jay. I have no empathy for them, right? Because that podcast made me question their entire character. As a society, we're, we're just trained. Victims are bad people. The incarcerated deserve to be there. And until your eyes are open to that, until you've listened to, say, a podcast like Ear Hustle, then people probably believe that. Again, they don't know the reality of the criminal justice system. The average person doesn't. And they don't get that Everybody's human. Everybody has human rights. Yeah. <laughs> Even criminals. Um, but especially people who may be wrongly accused and just mentioned in a podcast. 
you know, in a lot of these stories, um, we kind of have this valorization of law enforcement, that they are coming in as heroes. So this kind of true crime media often acts and almost acts like a propaganda for cops or what I refer to as like copaganda, which is so interesting to me because these shows consistently acknowledge that police will botch cases, which is why there are so many unsolved mysteries or wrongfully target someone, and also show that police literally fail to prevent 100% of murders because they happen in the first place. (laughs) So... Why is that the case? What is this idea that we can both juggle and talk about unsolved mysteries while still lifting up law enforcement as the right responses to these harms and atrocities in this country? Wow, that's such a great question. What I will say is on the domestic violence side of True Crime Podcast, the ones that I've looked at have done a pretty good job of the reality I would say, based on my research and based on the folks that I've talked to, they usually criticize true crime podcasts for beating up the criminal justice system, specifically cops. On the flip side of that, shows like um, Magnum P.I. or uh, what was it, Hawaii Five-0 or any of those shows are definitely going to valorize it. So I don't know. I think that's such an interesting question. Um There's not a lot out there that is sort of in that gray zone. You know, it seems that you either are for the cops or you're against them. It's so interesting to me because, I mean, I'm really putting myself on blast here. And all my comrades and organizers are going to be like, Paige, why are you so obsessed with true crime? But I've (laughs) listened to so much Crime Junkies and I, like, so many of the episodes are going through, like, here are all the things the cops did wrong. And then at the Mm -hmm. end, there's like some advertisement or something for like donations to a law enforcement organization. I'm so (laughs) fascinated by that. I'm curious if our true crime obsession fuels any type of false sense of danger when it comes to things like murder um, specifically. What do you think? (laughs) Yes, 100%. And it's not just the true crime obsession, right? There's been research going back, again, decades on the media that they do tend to show the violent crimes, like you mentioned. And that does not match up with FBI statistics of the number of violent crimes. But so interestingly enough, what I want to say, going back to the one in four women have been victims of domestic violence, unfortunately, there is also data to show, and this is very recent data, that while one in four women are victims of domestic violence, Women who have reported their domestic situations to cops and have restraining orders are dying at an ever-increasing rate at the hands of their perpetrators, right? So that murder rate continues to go up. Why isn't that statistic out there? Why does everybody know the one in four statistic and we don't know that statistic? What's leading that statistic? What's causing it? Sorry, I went out on a total rant there. no. Let's keep on going on this rant because I think that's what you were saying is so fascinating and I think speaks to why I'm so interested in this is because, like, to me, that shows the lack of efficacy in our criminal legal system, that you can have this thing that's supposed to protect you and it doesn't. Do you think people who listen to this, who are storytellers, are imagining and thinking about harm prevention rather than just trying to, like, solve these cases, what alternatives can we put in place to actually keep people safe? 
Yes, some podcasts are doing a great job of that. I'll go back again to Cold with KSL TV in Utah. It's one in four nationwide. In Utah, it's one in three. And Dave went into that podcast knowing that a lot of his listeners would either be victims or survivors or would know someone who was a victim or a survivor. And at the end of every podcast episode, he made a call. If you know somebody who is suffering, please do X, Y, and Z. If you are someone who is suffering, please do X, Y, and Z. He was in contact with the domestic violence hotline. Please make a plan and save yourself. So I think there are some podcasts that are absolutely approaching it from that perspective. We need to educate people on the reality of these crimes, and we need to help them find resources, mm-hmm. 100%. There are others that are not. Right? Again, it's not really black and white. There's a lot of gray there. There's definitely room for improvement. And I would hope that podcasts lean towards help for victims and survivors and forcing society to see the reality of their lived experiences. I think we need to first and foremost care about the victims, get them the help that they need. And also fix the criminal justice system. Yeah. <laughs> but we can do both. <laughs> right? And I, I really do think we can do both, right? As a survivor of sexual assault, like there are resources that I needed that were not available to me. Resources I don't want in the criminal legal system. And because of our massive investment in the criminal legal system, we just don't have those other resources available that so many survivors and victims say that they need. Since we're talking about criminal legal system, <laughs> I just want to, you know, talk a little bit about the impact of true crime on us and our systems. And you know, during the summer of 2020, there were uprisings, Black Lives Matter uprisings with Black organizers emphasizing how being constantly subjected to the televised murder and abuse of Black people continues this horrible cycle of trauma, which I can relate to as a biracial Black woman. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, you know, what's the difference between televising criminal cases and visually displaying such, like, graphic imagery versus doing it over audio in the form of a podcast? And is there a difference in how that lands for people? Oh, awesome. I'm so glad you asked this question. So I asked specifically the women that I spoke to, do you do you read true crime books? Do you watch true crime documentaries? Are you just a true crime podcast fan? Or are you a true crime uh, fan? And almost all of them said, podcast is my number one. Um, a lot of them said, I have read books as well, but many of them told me they cannot watch the documentaries or the television shows because the visuals are seared into their memory. They said, I can't watch it on TV. I can't watch a documentary. It's, it's too visually um, assaulting, you know? Yeah. Um, but as with a podcast, I can listen to it. The images are in my mind. I can change them. Right. Um, And a lot of the women talked about listening to the same episode of a podcast over and over to sort of work through everything that was happening. Or if one particular episode really resonated with them and it was a day when they just needed a really good cathartic cry, then they would listen to that episode knowing that it would help them give that really good cathartic cry. So, yes, there is such a huge difference between audio media and visual media. And Not only is it the visuals are not being seared into your memory, but audio media has been shown to act almost, I think it's called an oral cocoon, right? If I'm reading a book, somebody can come up and interrupt me. If I'm watching TV, there's a commercial that blasts in my face, or somebody can interrupt me there as well. But with that oral cocoon, 
I can turn everything else off. So there's a huge difference between audio true crime and visual true crime. Thanks, Kelly. I think, you know, related to the uprisings where this kind of conversation of visual trauma um, and harm came up, I'm curious if and how the true crime genre tackles and tackled over the last year this national reckoning with police violence and kind of broader institutional harm. I think in a year where there were so many BLM protests, I have to imagine that there was some impact on this genre that's so heavily focused on the criminal legal system. What I will say as the impact that that I have personally seen, I have seen specific new podcasts being launched addressing that head on. Um, For example, Louder Than a Riot, which I think was produced by NPR, um, that was that was excellent. It talked about rap music, the origins of rap music, and how it has been so intertwined with the criminal justice system, which is which was fascinating. Um, a lot of traditionally marginalized groups based on gender and race have launched their own podcasts, right? So now you're seeing a lot of podcasts coming up that are being produced by Black women and you know Latinas and you know. All of this, there's so many good podcasts out there right now, and and it's doing what I would call presenting a counter-narrative. And that's not just me calling that, right? That's a fundamental, you know, tenet of critical race theory is the idea of a counter-narrative. And that means you're able to present your story, which runs counter to what you see in traditional media. So if given a voice, if given an outlet, you're able to present a counter-narrative of your life which is not what most people see in traditional media. The Women of Juarez, um, La Brega, I love La Brega, um, in Puerto Rico. So many good podcasts presenting this counter-narrative. Finding Cleo, I would say, is a counter-narrative. And I think that's their answer to what we've seen in society. I don't think it's changing the true crime podcast that I listen to, but I do think it's opening the door for other podcasts to present themselves as a counter-narrative and to tell their story. Yeah. Do you think it's going to be challenging for these kind of counter-narrative podcasts to gain traction? And, like, solely from, like, my perspective, like, I'm curious about, like, if an abolitionist true crime podcast that gives what I believe would be, like, an honest depiction of the criminal legal system— and also simultaneously have kind of a restorative justice lens that relies on seeking justice and healing outside of the legal system. Like, would that be something people have an appetite for? I think it's always a challenge to gain traction uh, with a new podcast. But is there an appetite for it? I would argue yes. The podcast Ear Hustle which I love. It's now produced inside of San Quentin and outside, uh, Erlon and Nigel. I love, I love Nigel and er, Erlon. Um, so that has, that presents an absolutely different image of the criminal justice system. What is life like inside a prison? They rarely talk about what those men did outside of prison, but they're humanizing them behind those prison walls. These are humans. These are people, (laughs) you know, and some of them have reformed. What have they done to be reformed, right? I do think there's an appetite for it. I don't know that it is. I think the audience would have to be found. I'll say that. 
Yeah, that's very interesting because I guess the audience for true crime podcasts is so heavily white women. Yes. What they would be drawn to would be. So Kelly, over this conversation, we've really discussed a lot of harm, right? Harm that comes to victims, harms that perpetuated from these stories being told. And honestly, it seems like there are some massive corporations like Netflix that are profiting off of trauma and harm. What do we do with this? Do we need to be seeking some type of media reform? Can we even expect the media landscape as it is right now to be welcoming of changing its attitude towards covering stories that contain a lot of trauma, harm, pain, and injustice? I do think that's a big ask for the media industry, specifically the streaming platforms. I think it's going to be a hard ask to tell the media industry to um, only show things that are not going to harm its audience. Um, You know, but the reality is uh, crime shows are not the only thing that they show that harms the audience, right? I mean, what about horror movies? Yeah. You know, there's also plenty of other narratives out there that— cause other harm. So, you know, they, you know, the media industry, there's statistics out there that show they do not portray um, Arab Americans in a real light. They're never a real family, right? So the media isn't just depicting criminals in the criminal justice system incorrectly. They're also, you know, been shown to be horribly racist in their depictions of race and gender, horribly sexist. So, The media is not going to reform until the audience stops watching. Oh. On that note, (laughs) what is our role as the audience? How do we hold ourselves accountable and think more critically as we digest and intake these stories? Yeah. I'm going to go two ways with that. So one, Roxane Gay in her TED Talk on her Bad Feminist book, um, she talks about that specifically. She says she loves gangster rap. (laughs) And she's like, I know it's horrible. I know it says horrible things about women, but I love it. So am I supporting an industry that is saying bad things about me? I don't know, but I can listen to it knowing at a critical level, this is not presenting me in the right way. So I think Roxane Gay said that really well, right? She knows that she's consuming media that is representing her in a bad way, but she can still enjoy it. Just be a critical consumer of the media and understand its impact on society. Absolutely. And my final ask and question for you is to please reiterate those podcasts you mentioned that you think are kind of presenting this more counter-narrative. Ear Hustle. Ear Hustle. Ear Hustle. Hustle. It's produced by WMYC. Um, It is produced by um, Nigel and Erlon Woods. Erlon was in San Quentin, so it's produced inside San Quentin. So Nigel goes in there into San Quentin and volunteers on a regular basis, and she's like, let's start a podcast. It's fantastic. That is a fantastic, fantastic podcast. I love them. I have a sweatshirt. I have the book. I have a magnet. I love everything about Ear Hustle. That one's great. Counter-narrative, La Brega is out of Puerto Rico. They have two separate podcast feeds. Uh, One is fully in Spanish and one is in English. So I think that is great. And Forgotten the Women of Juarez. I don't know who 
produce that one. I can't remember, but if you Google it, you'll find it. And it does an excellent job talking about the relationship between Texas and Mexico and the issues, specifically the immigration and criminal justice issues right there along the border and how that's impacting women, which I think is needed. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kelly, for being on At Liberty with us today. Thank you for answering all of my questions. This has been so enlightening and just so exciting to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. It was awesome. I had so much fun. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, keep organizing and keep fighting.